Father, we just lift Neil up to you. I pray, Lord, tonight that your um, spirit will just flow through his words, that it will be like a tapestry that you're knitting together, that it will just um, knit into our hearts, that you'll open our ears to hear from you, Father, through him. I pray, Lord, for your anointing on him now as he preaches. And we thank you for what you have prepared for us. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Darlene. That is a unique introduction. I don't think I've ever been called the most exciting part of anything uh, ever, but it's done now, so it's, I'm owning it uh, in that space. I uh, remember just about 33 years ago, but less than 33 years ago, I had opportunity to do what we did tonight. I had opportunity to partake in my first communion. And uh, in the church, I was part of it at that time. It was kind of a process that you built up to that. And when you kind of became a full member and took responsibility for your faith, you were allowed to take your first communion. And I remember kneeling at the communion rail. And I'd recently been born again. A few months earlier than that, I'd committed my life to Christ and, uh, and experienced uh, just being cleansed and, and washed and forgiveness of my sins. And I remember kneeling at the rail and the, the minister who spoke at that service, I can even remember his name, not bad, eh? 33 years ago, the Reverend Jack Skulls, in case you don't believe me. Uh, he preached and he, the, the main idea, the main point of his message was that he died for me, so I'll live for him. And as I was kneeling at that communion rail, those words just echoed in my mind and echoed in my heart. He died for me, and so I'll live for him. And that became kind of my purpose for my life. If I could live for Jesus, if I could serve him, if I could serve him in, in joyful surrender, if I could get to the end of my life and say, I lived for him, I served him, that would be my answer to the following question. To what end, to what purpose are you living? To what direction, in what direction are you living? To what end are you living your life? And we want to look a little bit tonight uh, at that. Uh, this morning, just before the, the morning service, I was uh, preparing and I was organizing some of the Bible school and some of the things that were going on. I was walking between venues and I got back to my office and I thought about preaching tonight because tonight we were kind of going to do a bit of a summary of what God's been saying for the year so that we could lay a foundation for what's coming for the rest of the year. And as I was standing in my office, uh, a sermon title, I knew it was a sermon title, just I knew, um, dropped into my heart, which wasn't the sermon that was prepared for tonight. So I spent the afternoon preparing a whole new sermon, because I think God has something for us tonight. The title that dropped into my heart, I better get it right now, um, was The Beauty of a Surrendered Life. The Beauty of a Surrendered Life. And I'd like to talk uh, into that topic tonight. But as we consider this question, to what end are we living, uh, one of our challenges is that we, what happens particularly, I think, with younger generations today is that the world and everything around us teaches us that you can find that, the, the answer to that question, to what end am I living, that you can find it within yourself, that you can try and look within and you can go, this is who I want to be or this is what I want to do, and you find, and try and find that answer within yourself. Unfortunately, that doesn't really always work out. There is an element where you need to know who you are and how God made you and your gifts and talents, abilities and skills, and that's all part of it. But if you just look within the confines 
of yourself to try and answer that question, you're going to live a very small life. If your why, if your why, if your answer to the question, why am I here, is just generated from within, you're limiting yourself. The answer to that question, the answer to, the, to what end am I living is best found, true meaning is found outside of ourselves. When we realize that we become part of something bigger than ourselves, something better than ourselves. And so tonight we want to talk about, as I've mentioned, the beauty of a surrendered life. And this is largely to prepare us for what I believe is coming for the rest of the term, for what God has for us for the rest of the term. From next Sunday, we'll be focusing on a series called uh, God Speaks, subtitle, Be Ready. Okay, God Speaks. And if we want to step into this place where we can hear God speaking, not only to us as individuals, but to us as a community of faith, to us as families, I believe it starts around this concept of surrender. So one of the initiatives we have in place, I have this very unique thing for, for the younger people that might be lying on a chair near you. If, if you're in the back half of the room, there should be one close to you. Um, in case you don't know, this is a hard copy app. Okay. Uh, it's called a booklet. Um, but what uh, uh, Pastor Jack Ferreira has prepared for us, one of our retired pastors, is a devotional journey for the week ahead. So starting uh, actually tomorrow morning, there's a devotion for each day, some time where we can just sit and contemplate. It shouldn't take you longer than 10 to 15 minutes each day. And we want to invite the whole community, whatever space you're in, if you're meeting in a small group, a life group, or even with friends on campus or in your families, if each day you could perhaps just work through the uh, specific uh, part of that day. Uh, if this is too high-tech for you and too difficult for you to accommodate, it's also available on the internet on the church app and on our social media platforms. Uh, if you're intellectually challenged, it's in all those places for you as well. But this is one of the ways it's, uh, we want to use to prepare our hearts for the season ahead, for what God wants to say, the fact that God wants to speak to us. Is that okay? So can I ask and, and just invite you, encourage you, challenge you to participate in this as much as you can in as many spaces as you can uh, for the coming week. Tonight's message then is kind of a part two to prepare uh, to consider this idea of the beauty of a surrendered life. And I want to try and look at a few lives of some of the people in the Bible, some characters in Scripture, to help us just through a very narrow lens, through the, through the lens of surrender. How did surrender work in their lives? Each of these lives is much more than what I will be sharing or explaining or focusing on tonight, but just on this idea of surrender. Sorry, I'm, uh, I'm, on, uh, I'm battling a bit with a flu, so I'm medicated, which means I need this. It's all legal um, in this space. First person we want to look at tonight is Abraham, and we want to read about him in Hebrews chapter 11. Although he's an Old Testament character, we want to read about Abraham in, in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have a Bible or an uh, app device, please open at Hebrews 11, and there's a, quite a few verses I'd like to read there. And then use them to bridge to look at some of the other characters that we want to consider tonight. When we think about Abraham, we think about faith. Uh, he's the first man, first human being alive who, re who modeled for us, who showed us that the way we get into right relationship with God is faith. But we'll look at that now. Uh, Galatians 3.6 tells us to consider Abraham. And so we want to do that now and look at the life of Abraham. Hebrews 11 verse 8 to 10 starts talking about Abraham and it says the following. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place 
he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Even though he did not know where he was going, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, his son and his grandson, who were heirs with him of this same promise. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. I think just so that we're all on the same page around Abraham's story. Uh, it seems the story actually starts, by the way, with his father. He's, God seems to have told his father to move but he, to this land, but he doesn't move all the way. His father moves and they stop in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abraham lives for quite a few years in Ur. And then while he's there, God communicates, speaks to him. I don't know quite how it happened. But God tells him he needs to go down to Canaan, hundreds of kilometers away from where he is at, at that time. Um, and Abraham, somehow he believes that this is God's plan for his life. He believes that God has given him this promise that he must go and live in this area where other peoples live, but that one day God would give him and his descendants that land. And so in believing God, he responds to God in faith. He does what God tells him to do. And he goes and lives in this land. And in Genesis 12, we can read it's repeated a couple of times in Genesis, but one of the places is Genesis 12. God speaks to him and says, you will get this land and your descendants will be many. Okay? Uses all kinds of interesting metaphors like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore and all those things. And God promises this to him. But Abraham lives in this land. He doesn't own fixed property. He lives in a tent. But he lives in this place and he, he has an interesting life. He endures opposition. He endures famine. He endures hardship. But he holds on his heart to this promise that God has made that one day this land will belong to you and to your descendants. And God adds to this promise and that all nations will be blessed through you in this, uh, because you've obeyed me, because you've followed me. And so Abram takes the step of faith and he follows God. Now this, what we've read in Hebrews now, is quite early in the life of Abram. It kind of ex explains the early part of his life. He goes and lives a while in Egypt he does some very, un he does, well, at least one uncool thing. Very, uh, one thing that's not really all that faith-driven. He moves down to Egypt at a stage uh, to secure the existence of his family, to secure provision, because there's a famine in the land of Canaan. And his wife, who's Sarah, um, she must have been quite good-looking, because, I'll tell you why I say this. The Bible doesn't say she was good-looking, but she must have had something going for her. Because they're living down in Egypt, and king, the pharaoh, sees his wife and goes, she's very pretty, I want her. But Abram hasn't told anybody that she's his wife. In fact, he's been telling people that she's his sister. Because he thinks if, the, if I tell them she's my wife, then they're going to kill me. I won't be protected. I won't be safe. And so he lies that his wife is his, sis <laughs> his sister. Uh, not cool. Okay. Speak to the married men. If you try and tell anyone your wife is your sister. Now, she's your sister in the Lord, I suppose. Okay, That's, this would be truth. But she's also more than that. Okay. Okay, back on track. And then, and then God intervenes. So Abraham doesn't protect Sarah. God intervenes and he messes up Pharaoh's household and stuff. Eventually, Pharaoh realizes Abraham was lying and he you know, backs off and says, I'm so sorry. And Abraham is blessed. You'd think Abraham learns, but a few years later, he's back in this promised land in the area of Canaan, modern-day Israel, and he's living in a region, and guess what he does? The same thing. Okay, the, the king, I think it was Abimelech was the king. I speak under correction. Uh, he's the king there, and he notices Sarah, 
And again, Abram says, she's, she's my sister. And so the king actually takes her into his household. But then things again start going very wrong in his household. And he, they inquire and they find out, no, but actually God speaks to the king and says, she's Abram's wife. So it's interesting, although Abram's the man of faith, as he does this journey of following God, he makes some significant blunders. He makes some significant errors of judgment, I would think. Okay. Yet, when we read about him in Hebrews 11, it says he's a man of faith. He responds to God in faith. Because, you see, Abram's learning something about surrender. What Abram tries to do when he uh, lies about Sarah is he's trying to protect himself, make sure he stays safe, and he's in trying to ensure that he stays looked after. He's trying to secure his provision. But God deals with him, and he keeps on growing with God. He keeps on learning about God. Drop down a few verses in Hebrews 11 for verse 17. He goes on this journey till he comes to the place where he can do this. And I know you heard a sermon about this about two weeks ago, I think now. Hebrews eleven seventeen. it says, By faith, Abram, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice, who he had embraced, sorry, who he had embraced the promise was about, uh, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abram reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. What's happened here? And I know Kent Martin was here two weeks ago and he spoke in depth about this, so I don't want to get too much into that. But later on in Abram's life, after he's now learned and I'm sure Sarah helped him learn a few lessons as well. After he's learned his lessons about trusting God, God gives him a promise that through him all nations on the earth will be blessed. Through his descendants, they will inherit the land. But miraculously, they could never have a child, and then miraculously, God lets his wife get pregnant. Just so that you understand the miracle, yeah? His wife's about 90 years old at this time. Nine, zero. Not one, nine. Okay, it's a miracle. If you want to understand why, speak to someone who understands such things. Okay, it's a miracle. She gets pregnant, and that means everything that, God, that Abram believes God has promised him is going to happen through Isaac. But then God, God tests Abram, it says here, and he says, go and kill your son. And they go to a mountain, and Abram's about standing over his son with a knife, speak about daddy issues. Um, and then God stops him and provides another sacrifice for him there. You see, Abram's now learned that when he comes to this place, that no matter what God tells him, he's going to have faith. Because he even believed that God would raise his son from the dead to make his promise come true. That's how much Abram has learned to know God and to trust God. And so Abram, it's interesting, he's remembered, it's like this, God remembers the best of Abram's life. God remembers the best of our lives. He, God knows the journey, but when he comes to like the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11, the best is remembered. Remember that, you know, I asked him to sacrifice his son and he trusted me so much that he would have done it anyway. So Abram is this man of faith. Abram had to learn not to secure his own existence. He had to come free from trying, he had to learn, so he had to come free enough to learn to surrender. He had to move from self-sufficiency to surrender. And so we see that Abram's surrender sets a precedent for all humanity, for all mankind, that faith is the means to be restored to God. Because Abram was prepared not only to surrender by going from a foreign country to a place he did not even know, 
He was prepared to surrender and live in a tent his whole life. He surrendered, 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 that he was prepared to surrender his son. Because of that, he sets a precedent. That when Paul writes in the New Testament, Galatians, Romans, Abraham's the man. Abraham's the model because Abraham was prepared to surrender. God did something great because a man was prepared to surrender. Let's look a little bit at the life of Joshua and actually the the nation of Israel, all the people at that time. Joshua is about a new era. Joshua is also about conquest. He led the Israelites into the promised land when they had to take over Canaan. Uh, The bridge is Hebrews 11 verse 30. In this hall of fame of faith, Hebrews 11.30 says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. It's interesting. The whole chapter up until this point is, speaks about people. It was Abram and it's Sarah and it's Abram and it's all these different people. And then here in verse 30 it says, And then Jericho fell because of faith, because the whole nation marched around Jericho for seven days. But they were led by Joshua at this time. Now Joshua is interesting And if you remember your Bible story, your Bible history, the Israelites get taken out of Egypt by God, and quite quickly, within a month or two, they're at the borders of the promised land, the land that God promised to Abram. Four or five hundred years later, this happens. They're at the land, and they're kind of ready to go in. And what Moses does is he sends in 12 spies. You remember the story? And they come back, and they said, wonderful land, lots of nice things there. They use metaphors like milk and honey, because apparently... Uh, No one was lactose intolerant and all those things in those days. It was a good thing, land of milk and honey. Um, Big bunches of grapes, but there be giants. And 10 of the spies say, this is is beyond us. Us as a nation, if we look at our own skills, abilities, gifts, and talents, we can't do this. We, We can't take on giants, which is crazy because, by the way, on their way to the promised land, they defeated two giants. One's name was Och. King of Bashan, it's just cool to say. Oh, okay, they defeated a giant who was probably, if, if we do the measurements, probably about three meters tall. So they kind of had experience in giant killing, but they get to the promised land and 10 spies say, we can't do this. You see, God always prepares us for our faith tests. So he'd given them a victory over a giant, but 10 guys say they can't. Only Joshua and Caleb say, no, we can do this because they're not relying on themselves. They're seeing what God wants to do. They surrendered to the purposes of God. So for 40 years, God says they can't go in, and everyone above a certain age in that generation has to wander around in the desert, and they have to die. And God raises up a new generation. Imagine what it's like for Joshua. You know that him, you know, he knows that him and Caleb, they can go into the promised land because they had faith. They believed God. He, but they know they've got to wait for certain people to pass. Okay, so I mean, it was in the first 20 or 30 years, you know, it wasn't much, but kind of in the last year, you kind of know, it's, you know, those three. <laughs> and so every morning on your quiet time journey, you happen to walk past the tent, and eventually there's one. And so your quiet time journey goes like morning, evening, and, and every time you walk past the tent, you're, oh, not today. <laughs> Imagine Joshua's, no, but it speaks to the character of the man. 40 years he stays faithful. 40 years he stays surrendered. 40 years he stays focused on the purposes of God. And so when it comes time to enter the promised land, the leadership is 
Mantle moves from Moses to Joshua. Joshua gets the leadership of the nation. He's the one who leads the nation into a new era, into a new season. It was bigger than a season. They were going from a nomadic people to a people with a land. They were going from a people who had a promise unfulfilled to a promise realized. Because the promise made to Abraham is now going to start coming true. And Joshua is chosen because he's the man of faith. Caleb's interesting too. Um, they start conquering the pro- This is an aside. Um, they start conquering the promised land. They get most areas. But the areas where the giants live, they don't conquer them. They leave them for lost. You thought they might have learned a little bit better. But they leave the giants for lost. And so after a couple of years of conquering the land and taking the territory, we read this one little interesting story about Caleb. He goes to Joshua and he says, I want that land where the giants are. Caleb's 80 years old now. 80 Okay, and he says, give me the giants. Okay, so age is a little bit irrelevant in this thing. But why, so Joshua's leading the nation, but why does Hebrews 11.30 in this verse say they conquered Jericho? Conquering Jericho was an act of faith. You see, Jericho was the new generation's test of surrender. Were they going to come to Jericho and try and conquer it with their own skills, gifts, abilities, and talents, with their own knowledge of warfare, with their own weaponry. Because if they did, they would have done what you did in warfare in those days. You would have laid siege to the city. Siege is a great strategy of warfare. You surround the city, nothing goes in, nothing comes out. Maximum loss of human life, minimum loss of property. That's why they did it. Okay, But they they would have laid siege. That was conventional wisdom. That was human strength and human understanding at the time. But God tells Joshua, and that's not what you're going to do. Your fantastic strategy of warfare, novel, new, never been seen before in the history of mankind, way to conquer cities is you're going to walk around it in silence once a day for six days. About a million people plus. Okay? took a while. Get up in the morning. You're going to conquer the city. You're going to do what God tells you to do. What do you want to do? Keep quiet. Walk around the city. Next day, keep quiet. Walk around the city. Okay, six times. I'm not going to repeat it. Seventh day, what do you have to do? Seven laps of the city. Keep quiet. Walk around the city. It's a great strategy of war, isn't it? But then at the end of the seventh time, what you've got to do, God tells Joshua and then the nation of Israel, is you've got to shout at the walls. Okay? Now, probably by that time, they were a little tired of being quiet, so they probably had something to to vent and to say. And so they shout, they surrender to God's plan. This is the important part of the story. They surrender to God's strategies, they surrender to his ways, his plans, his strategies. And they shout and the walls come down and then they go in and they kill everybody and take over the city. Okay, so they did fight in the space. But it's marked in Hebrews as a moment of faith because the people were surrendered. And so part of surrender, and this comes from some other sermons, I'm not sure if it's been said this way in the evening service, but the the sustained sound released by a surrendered people will bring down the walls. A sustained sound released by a surrendered people will bring down the walls. That's what the nation of Israel models for us. And so in a lot of our services, we've been talking about what sound is God releasing, not only from Hatfield, but what sound is God releasing from your life? Is it a sound of surrender? Because when surrender is sustained like it was in Joshua's life and in Caleb's life, then the walls can come down. 
It's interesting, with this change of era, if you read in Joshua chapter 5, the book of Joshua chapter 5, the nation consecrates themselves before the Lord, before they, go, they consecrate themselves to the Lord, before they go to battle. And before they actually start conquering Jericho, the manna stops. Imagine Joshua leading the people. Up under Moses, everything's provided. It's kind of a monotonous diet, manna and quail and manna and quail and manna and quail. Everything's provided. But when you step into the new era, when you start conquest, the style of provision completely changes. I think it's Joshua 5, around verse 13. It says, on that day, the manna stopped. And they hadn't actually conquered anything yet. They hadn't, but it says then, in the year ahead, they lived off the land. But on the day the manna stopped, because you see, you're only allowed to connect enough for one day. <laughs> and so on the day the manna stopped, guess what happened the next day? Nobody had food. You're Joshua. You need to know what God's told you to do. You need to be super surrendered, if I can put it that way. And so sometimes when we step, we surrender to God and he asks us to step into new places or to conquer new territories, provision changes. The style of provision or God's manner of provision can change in our lives as well. And it doesn't mean you're not surrendered and it doesn't mean you haven't heard from God. It just means God's changing it up. God's doing something different. So why? So you can surrender some, some more into that space. And so Joshua shows us and the nation of Israel here shows us that we need to move from self-sufficiency to surrender if we want to conquer. If we want to enter our promised lands, we need to move from self-sufficiency to surrender. Third person we want to just look at tonight. We want to look at Mary, Jesus' mom. Okay? Mary, the mother of Jesus. From everything we can piece together and understand, Mary would have been quite young. Okay? Quite young in those days meant uh, between 14 and 18. Is that okay? That was the normal age Jewish girls were given in marriage. Mary is engaged to be married to Joseph, you would have probably been a little bit older than her. She has this unique once-off experience, once-off in the history of mankind. Let's just be clear about that. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. I'd actually, I think we've got time. Let's read it. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Let's read it together. It tells the story. Now, we're so used to the story, I think we often miss the drama, the real-life drama that's associated with the story. We read it at Christmas and I don't think we read it as true to life often. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 26, uh, Mary's cousin is Elizabeth. She was the mother of John the Baptist. Um, so in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sends the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Uh, the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you, who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. So what we learned from the scripture, if an angel ever appears to you and says, greetings to you, the Lord is with you, something big's coming. Okay. Uh, you are highly favored of the Lord. Very important that she had to know that she was favored. Verse 29, so cool of Luke. Mary was greatly troubled. She's a young, she's a teenager by all, all measures that we would understand it today. She's a teenager an angel appears to her and says, you're favored of God. The Lord is uh, with you. She's troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Some might say typical teenager. Um, but the angel said to her, 
do not be afraid. Why do angels and God always say that to people? Do not be afraid. Because when we usually are, when they appear to us. Okay. Do not be, made, be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. So no problems with name books or nothing? Name said. You call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the son of the most high God. The Lord will give him, a thro- the, give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary knows from the beginning what the purpose of Jesus is. It's declared for her. It's up front. Okay, she knows that God's got a rather important plan with her life. Verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angels, since I am a virgin? Great common sense question. The angel answered, by the way, (laughs) just earlier in the story, when God appears to John the Baptist's dad, he doesn't talk back, he just goes dumb, can't speak for until his son is born. That's the typical thing that happens when men see angels in the Bible, they just fall or they lose their voice. Women... They speak as equals. Okay. Um, yeah, it's Women's Month. That's why I picked this example as well. No, I'm serious. I wanted to do a word. Okay, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One, will be, uh, the Holy one to be born will be called the Son of God. Uh, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who said it was, she was unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Great verse. No word from God will ever fail. This is a lot to take in if you're a teenager. First of all, just the angel on its own. Now, some like heavy stuff, okay? Uh, Something's going to happen to you that never has happened in the past and it's never going to happen again. God, you're going to have God's son, okay? Uh, Virgin birth. There was only one, by the way, ever, just in case anyone is ever wondering. Um, you're going to have God's son. Now Mary's, she's, she's engaged. There's social implications to what's going to happen here. She, if she's pregnant, it's uh, social shame. In a culture that's largely built on honor and shame, this is shameful that she's pregnant. And everyone's going to be looking at Joseph, and Joseph's going to be going, wasn't me. Okay. Verse 38, awesome verse, Mary's response. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled in me. Then the angel left. Imagine you're Mary. It will be easier for some. Imagine you're Mary. And God appears to you or God calls you to something that is beyond yourself. Maybe even unimaginable. God calls you. Are you surrendered in your heart enough to say what Mary says? In some of the more literal translations, it says, Mary says, may it be to me according to your word. When God comes to you and he says, I want you to surrender, or I've got this plan for your life, it's a little bit different from the plans you've had. You thought your life was going this way, I want to take it that way. Are we surrendered enough to say, may it be to me according to your word? May it be to me according to your word. I'm sure Mary had questions about provision. What's going to happen to me? How am I going to be looked after? You know, how's Joseph going to react? What's What are my friends going to say? What's my family going to say? What's the community going to say? Am I going to be safe? Yet she still surrenders and says, be it to me according to your word. So Mary shows us what God can do through one surrendered soul. Mary shows us what God can do 
through one surrendered soul. Last person I want to look at tonight is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. Wrote most of the New Testament, in case you didn't know. Everything from Romans through to just before Hebrews, basically. About right, Seth, eh? Yeah. Lots of the New Testament Paul, Paul wrote. Before he meets Jesus, Paul's kind of this prodigy. He's a success story, okay? He's excelling in the law. He's beyond the people of his age in his understanding of the Jewish laws. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He excels. He's got zeal. He's so zealous to serve God that he's killing Christians because he thinks they're heretics, okay? He's kind of one of these A-type super overachiever Jewish people, okay? He's really going for it. He was in the in crowd, Everyone in his culture, everyone in his community, most people in Jerusalem, he was in, others were out. He was, what we would say, on the fast track to promotion. Yet, God calls him. The one who persecuted the church, the one who persecuted Christians. God's got a plan for his life. So on the road to Damascus, God knocks him off his donkey or his horse. Depends on which, which version you're reading. God knocks him off his horse. Because sometimes when you're doing really well, God's got to just knock you off your horse. Philippians chapter 3, Paul reflects on this. Uh, This is probably about uh, 25, 30 years after he's been knocked off his horse. He's now been serving Jesus for 25, 30 years. He writes a letter to the Philippians uh, and he talks about his former life and what it was like in relation to what he has found in serving God and and being surrendered to to God. Because what God calls Paul to do is to not minister to Jewish people, but go to Gentile people, to people outside his culture, outside his norms. He travels through most of the Roman world, Asia, what we would call modern-day Turkey, Greece, as far as Italy he goes, spends his life planting churches. Uh, He writes and he reflects Philippians 3, verse 4. He says, I myself have reasons for such confidence, confidence in in myself, confidence in my self-righteousness, confidence in my ability. He said, I have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, yeah, that means your natural self, your own abilities. He says, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Apparently, that was a good thing. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. So of the strict sect, I was of the strictest. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I find that such an interesting verse. Because often we read the Old Testament, we go, that's impossible. Paul Paul read and he said, faultless. In other words, all 623 commands that they developed by the time of Jesus, Paul said, tick, 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 faultless. Okay, he was obeying the Old Testament people and in his view, getting it right. So he's saying, "If if anyone could do it on their own, if anyone could serve God and get it right, it was me. Verse 7, but contrast. That was before he knew Jesus, but then he meets Jesus and he says, whatever were gains to me, whatever success I had, whatever cultural accolades I ticked off, whatever career path I was on, whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. He will surrender everything to know Jesus better because it's for his sake I have lost all things. I consider them Garbage. It's a very interesting Greek word there. It means garbage. Okay. 
Everything of his life he considers trash. Everything he's achieved of his own self he considers rubbish. Why? So that I may gain Christ and that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul moves from self-righteousness, obeying the law, and self-sufficiency, I know how to serve God, to a place of surrender. He moves to this place of surrender where he knows it's about knowing Jesus, where he knows it's about following Christ. If you can click on one slide, please. Okay. Uh, one more? Sorry, I'm skipping that one. Sorry. So Paul moves from self-righteousness and, my mistake, sorry, and self-sufficiency to surrender so that he could know Christ. And in pursuing this, if you ask Paul, what's the end of your life? To what end are you living? What's your purpose? He would go, I want to know Christ. Everything's rubbish. I want to know Jesus. And in doing that, Paul changes his world that he lived in at his time. In fact, we read in Acts that he lived for two and a half years in a city called Ephesus. And while he was there preaching and teaching the gospel, leading people to Christ, the economy of the region changed. The guys who made idols threw a riot, caused a riot, because they were so worried that he was leading so many people to Jesus that they lost their income. The whole province's economy changes because one man lives a surrendered life. Many churches get planted. All the churches we read about in the book of Revelation, they get planted here. Paul takes the gospel into Europe. So he changes his world. And through his writings, which we have in the New Testament, he changes history. The Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin, all those guys in the 1500s, they read Paul and they go, I get into right relationship God, with God by faith, like Abraham, another man with a surrendered life, Paul with a surrendered life. And the world starts changing because someone was prepared to surrender all the accolades and all their own successes so that they could pursue Christ. If we want to live a surrendered life, if we want to move away from self-reliance self and self-righteousness, by self-righteousness I mean this, that I can earn points with God, that I can do in my own strength, ability, skills, and talents, I can get it right. If we want to move away from that, there are some obstacles, and I've alluded to them as, as I've been preaching just every now and then. We have to settle, if I want to surrender to Jesus, there's more, but these two. What will, will God provide for me? And that was Abraham's question. I've got to leave everything I know, everything I come from. Will God provide for me? And secondly, will God protect me? And these are questions I think we come back to again and again. I remember when I was kneeling at that communion rail, I was happy to be poor <laughs> my whole life if I could just serve Jesus. Because I kind of figured out what ministers earned and I went, but I'm going to serve. Okay, because I just believed God would provide. 33 years later, God has provided. 33 years later, God has protected. We sang, he's a faithful God. But let's not think that surrender is easy. That's not what I'm trying to say tonight. I'm saying surrender involves settling things around provision, settling things around um, protection, but if you look at the life of Abram, you look at the life of Joshua, you look at the life of Mary, they were provided for, they were protected. If you look at the life of Paul, he was provided for, he was protected. Went through a lot, he got beaten up, whipped, 
didn't matter to him because he lived a surrendered life. He felt God protected him in that space. And so to what end are you living your life? The only worthwhile end that is outside of yourself is God, that I may know Christ in Paul's language. The only worthwhile end is to find your place in the kingdom of God and to live to establish his kingdom on earth. So the beauty of a surrendered life is when you find your why. When you find your why that I live for God and as I lose my life in him, Jesus said, if you lose your life, you will find it. That's when you find beauty. That's when you find provision. That's when you find true protection. When you can live with an eternal perspective, you find the beauty of a surrendered life. And as you're sitting here tonight, I'm sure everyone in part has experienced some step of surrender. And I think it's an ongoing journey in all of our lives. We surrender, and then you surrender some more, and then you surrender some more. And then Paul writes and he says, it's just until you're dead (laughs) that you surrender. The more you surrender of yourself, the more you gain of Christ. And so can I invite us to stand tonight? Perhaps you're in a space where God's just comforting you, healing you, building you up, making you stronger. That's a good space to be in. Embrace what God is doing. If you're in a space of comfort, stay in the space that God wants you to be in. That's actually surrender. Surrender is stay in the space that God wants you to be in. But I think some of you are also in a space of where God's challenging you, where he's asking you to take the next step of surrender tonight. And so I'm going to pray a prayer shortly. And just trust the Lord that if there's anything, maybe it's a specific thing you have to surrender, or a dream, or a relationship, or an issue. Maybe it's someone you need to forgive. That's an act of surrender as well. That you respond to the Lord and say, well, Lord, as you're already in your heart, obviously it has to be you that cooperates with God in this space. That you surrender just the next thing that God wants you to do. And you take that step. And tomorrow you take the next step. And as you're on the campus or in class or in your workplace tomorrow, how do you surrender to Christ? Towards the end of Hebrews 11, it actually says it twice in the chapter, but the last two verses, it's listed all these people who've lived these lives of faith, surrendered lives. And he says, these were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us they would be made perfect. The us is those who live on the side of Jesus. The us is those who've known Jesus. And so you might have promises in your life that you need to surrender to God. Often we think that the promises we have are for us and for now. And I think in part they are. But when we live with an eternal perspective, we also realize that when I surrender It's about my children and their children. It's about the world. It's about the lost. It's about winning kingdoms, winning nations for Christ, different ethnic groups for Christ. Because the the promises God has given you, the plans he's laid out for your life are bigger than you. To what end are you living your life? It cannot be just for yourself. It has to be for God and for his purposes. And then those promises 
they're not just for you. Abraham never saw the promise that God made to him fulfilled, yet he kept on surrendering and he kept on believing to the nth degree that he could. Father, thank you that even as we celebrated communion tonight, and we didn't have time tonight to look at the life of Jesus, but you humbled yourself, Jesus, even to death, even death on the cross. You said that the world must learn that you love the Father and that you'll do what he's commanded you to do. That's what Jesus said. And Lord, may that be true of our lives, that we can humbly and joyfully surrender so that we can experience the beauty of who you are, the beauty of changed families, the beauties of changed workplaces, the beauty of changed communities, the beauty of changed nations, the beauty of changed towns, and the beauty of changed lives, our own and others. And so as we stand here tonight, Lord, for those of us that are in a space of comfort and healing, we surrender to that. Comfort us and heal us. For those that are in a space of challenge, where you're asking us to surrender, I pray for a special grace that we can see beyond ourselves. We can just have a glimpse of our lives from a, perhaps a more eternal perspective. That we can see how we can gain Christ as we give up. And so, Lord, those things which you have in our minds, in our hearts, and maybe those things that you'll put before us in the week ahead, I ask for a grace, Lord, that we can live with open hands. That that which you add to our hands, we receive gladly and we steward it well, as we've learned. We steward it well, Lord. But that our hands stay open and then when we need to surrender, we surrender. Because, Lord, we know when we surrender, there's more space for you. We know when we surrender, there's more space for your purposes and your dreams. And so come, Holy Spirit. Convict our minds, convict our hearts where that is necessary. And then come alongside us and journey with us and walk with us as we surrender that which you've called us to do. Because we want to lay hold of Christ for ourselves and for others. We want to lay hold of Christ for our communities and for our world. If you could agree with some or any part of that prayer, won't you join me in saying, in Jesus' name we say, Amen and Amen.